Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 11 being recorded on Thursday, January 28th. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. How you doing? I am doing terrific. How are you doing, Scott? I am doing good. Um, you mentioned at the top of the show, it's January 28th, and we are deep into earnings season. So it's been been a busy time in e-commerce land following all the stuff going on and blogging and talking to reporters about all the different uh, companies that have reported. Yeah, I feel like uh, we even pushed the show back a day to make sure we got some of the big uh, e-commerce earnings calls, including Amazon's today, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so chronologically, it started with eBay. They were yesterday after the market, uh, and it was a little disappointing. So eBay came out, and the marketplace grew 4% uh, on a GMV basis. A couple of interesting things. So for the first time, um, this is their first fourth quarter as an independent company. They had always been with PayPal. So they actually uh, provided a bunch of new information. So they released uh, StubHub and how their classifieds are doing, and then they broke out the core marketplace. Uh, it was kind of a good news, bad news kind of thing on that because the good news was StubHub is growing at a whopping 30% year over year. Uh, even the eBay classifieds is growing kind of 15%. But then the bad news is that actually the eBay entity is growing 5 or 6%, but then the marketplace actually is growing only 4%. So um, I know longtime listeners know this, but bears repeating. Uh, I always use the Comscore they came out and said the holiday was uh, right around 14%. And then e-commerce last year was kind of in the 14 to 15% range. So I always use that as a baseline when I think about how these different companies are doing. So, you know, obviously 4% is, is not in line with e-commerce. So eBay continues to struggle. They, they listed kind of three things, which was interesting. So one has been going on since March of uh, 14. Uh, and that's this SEO problem that they have. Uh, the second one was really interesting, and that's mobile. And the third is consumer to consumer. And uh, those two are the first time they've talked about those being headwinds. Uh, mobile was really interesting because they said that GMV on mobile grew 21%. But when I did the math on that, um, that was a pretty material deceleration. Uh, we saw in our numbers more like 50% mobile growth uh, across our customer base. So um, all this goes back to September of last year. Uh, they did a whole new version of the eBay app called uh, eBay 4.0, I think. Or do you do you track this stuff? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it um, it universally got terrible reviews. Um, and they had uh, earlier in the year they had hired this guy from Apple who was like their core UX e-commerce guy, and this was his redo of the app, and it has much more of an Apple kind of curated feel. Uh, but I think the challenge is, you know, you go from Apple where they have something like a whopping eight SKUs, maybe maybe twelve, uh, and you know now you're at eBay with you know someone you know, millions of SKUs, and uh, it's universally been poo pooed by everyone that's used this app. And uh, eBay, uh, you know, kind of even called out that they're they're working quickly to try to fix that app. So it seems like they stubbed their toe, kind of self inflicted on mobile. Um, and then consumer to consumer was interesting because they've never really split out B to C and C to C. They used to do this maybe in the Jeff Jordan regime, you know, way back when in like 
03 kind of thing. Uh, but they were back to that nomenclature this time. And um, it was another one of these good news, bad news things. They said B to C grew 8%. But if I kind of do the math on that, then I think C to C shrank uh, like 6%. And then on mobile, if mobile grew 21%, that implies given their 4% growth, that desktop shrank like 7%. So um, really tough sledding. Uh, on the SEO front, they also got some bad news. Uh, you're more familiar with this company than I am. They're, they're Moz, I guess, M-O-Z. Uh, and they do this annual report of the winners and losers in SEO. And, and eBay was a, kind of a had the dubious honor of being uh, another loser. Um, and they look at you know, where you're placing across all these different terms and, and all this kind of thing. And for 2015, eBay was a loser. So a lot of the things they're doing from an SEO perspective are not really moving forward. Um, the last thing about that uh, is they're really focused on, you've probably seen when you're on uh, Amazon, you have this kind of pristine product catalog. So if you search for an iPad, it's very clear, you know, here's the iPad Air 2, here's the iPad Air 1, and then you drill in there and you can see you have one universal SKU and then sellers against that SKU. eBay's always been more listing oriented. They're trying, and this is the third time they've done this over the 15-year arc I've followed eBay. They're trying to get to that Amazon catalog-like thing, and they call it the SDI, the Structured Data Initiative. Um, so, you know, they they spent most of the time on their call with Wall Street uh, talking up this this initiative. And you, know, you, you I agree that it's something they need to do, but you kind of wonder how is that really going to solve their problems. And, you know, a lot of what they're doing is for SEO, which, uh, you know, I'm not an SEO guru, but it seems to me like you should design for humans first and then robots, but it seems like they're really, really focused on SEO a lot there. So, uh, so that was interesting. Did, did you see anything out of the eBay news that you thought was interesting? Yeah. I mean, well, I think you hit on all the main topics, but you know, it, it is interesting prior to, to the, uh, V4 mobile experience, a lot of people would have said that eBay was, an early leader in mobile usability and that they actually, you know, had more users on the mobile app and were, and were doing a better job of, conver- of, of actually conducting transactions versus the rest of the industry. And so, you know, when they went to four, they got a ton of consumer complaints and in the, um, in their, their annual report there or in, in their, uh, reporting today, they, they talked about, We've done a good job of mitigating all those consumer complaints, and we're not getting all those complaints, but the new platform still doesn't even perform as well as the old platform. And obviously, you know, when they spent all that money to go to version 4, presumably it was in the hopes of having better performance than version 3. Yeah, I kind of wondered, you know, why don't you just roll it back, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I do think it's a cautionary tale. You know, anytime you do these big bang changes and, you know, there are lots of retailers out there that are right now thinking about redoing their mobile experience as a big bang, just redesigning it is, is not a guarantee of success. And, uh, I, I think there certainly are a lot of learnings from, from eBay who's now paying, you know, about a year's penalty on, uh, on that step backwards. The, the C to C thing I thought was interesting. Like, of course, you know, a lot of people probably know, eBay started out as a C to C model and evolved into the the B to C, and I think that's similar evolution we see with Alibaba in China. C to C is still a huge chunk of Alibaba's revenue, and the fact that that eBay is starting to talk about it again, I wonder if they do see a potential market in the U.S. or at least a bigger white space in the U.S. for some some form of C to C, where obviously they don't have near the competition that they 
they do on the on the B to C side. So that'll be interesting to see if they they try to make more hay of that. Uh, I, I saw an interview with their CEO earlier in the week, and he was talking about how you know he felt like there was room in the marketplace for multiple winners, uh, implying he doesn't have to beat Amazon to be successful, which I certainly agree with. Uh, but he talked a lot about you know Amazon is where you'll go for utilities, and the eBay is where you'll go for the hard to find stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, like if that's going to be their value proposition, that's a little scary to me because if you look at the pace at which Amazon is adding SKUs, uh, like I, I don't think uh, eBay being the place that you can get hard to find stuff that you can't find on Amazon is a very long term defensible position. Yeah, that latest survey had Amazon getting up around four hundred million, um, and eBay has that many listings, but there's a lot of duplication in there. So, so I would argue Amazon's probably already a superset of eBay. Exactly, and th- and that's really what that structured data is all about, right? Like Amazon has one page for every SKU, and if there's ten sellers, they all share that same page. Uh, in the 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 non SDI world, eBay has a different page for every listing, and I think they said that SDI is up to around. 50 to 60 percent now of all their yeah yeah 60 percent of 18 target categories so got it so even even narrower yeah so obviously like probably less skews overall the sdi thing is a big challenge for seo um and so i i do believe they'll get more google traffic when they get sdi meaningfully fixed i think they they said they didn't expect that to happen until at least 2017 or 2018 that they would see an economic benefit from that. But it also comes with a bunch of headaches that I don't know if eBay's prepared for. Like at the moment on the Amazon marketplace, because all the sellers do share a listing, there are lots of sort of gray hat things people can do to hijack listings. And, you know, they all, they all fight over the content on that page and sellers can benefit from other sellers investing in content and things like that. So there's, there's a whole, a whole new set of challenges you have when you when you're managing a marketplace with shared listings that you know I'm not sure eBay has totally experienced yet so it'd be interesting to see how they yeah they manage that and then on the SEO thing uh, you know the one sort of uh, scuttlebutt that that went around a little bit today that I I don't totally buy um so part of eBay's problem is they actually took a manual action from Google in 2014 and and Google essentially said hey we don't like the way you're creating some of these pages. We think you're doing them just for our bots and not for users. Um, and we're going to manually penalize you for that. And, and I think that that manual action is off. But as you pointed out, they're, they're getting less search share this year than they did last year, according to Moz. Um, and so even with that penalty off, they're losing ground in SEO. And, you know, a narrative I saw a couple of people make today is, eBay did release this famous internal study a couple of years ago where they essentially concluded that pay-per-click advertising probably wasn't profitable for them. And so there was this, this theory that like, oh my gosh, you know, they, they took a big shot at Google by saying that pay-per-click advertising doesn't really work, which is Google's core business. And that, you know, some of these SEO problems that eBay is having are, are retribution from, from that, that old article. It's impossible because Google's motto is do no evil. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, I would not re- hang my hat on that as my sole protection. I actually don't think <laughs> Google would t- – it'd be a pretty huge risk to take a manual action against someone specifically because they didn't like them. So I do, I do sort of doubt that those two are related. But I do note that in this year's earning call, you know, 
eBay spending a bunch of money on pay-per-click and saying they're getting a good return on that investment. So whether, you know, for one reason or another, they seem to have backed off of that, that earlier stance that maybe pay-per-click didn't work. And, you know, frankly, part of me wonders, in the old days, they were one of the few pay-per-click advertisers and they had the space to themselves. And as it got really competitive, you know, one of the things you could do is publish some data to say pay-per-click didn't work that might scare away some of your competitors and help you get a lower cost to click. So, frankly, I think that article might have been more to help keep their costs down than some some real effort to help the industry by teaching them not to give their money to Google. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. This has been going on. There was this whole, um, you know, Google launched when they launched the the checkout system. Uh, there was a lot of a back and forth there. They had a tea party at one of the eBay events and that really upset eBay. And then they yanked search back then too. And so, so these guys have been trading blows for a while, either, exactly. either publicly too. or behind the scenes. Yep. They, they have been uh, uh, in the space as long as anyone. Yeah. Google hasn't reported, but my, my guess is that they are going to do better than the 4%. So it seems like they're Google's winning this round. If there is a battle going on. Yeah. That's certainly where I would put my chips. Yes. You know who else won? <laughs> How about Facebook? Did you see, see those results? I yeah. did. I think they also uh, are a good place to put your chips right now. Yeah. Yeah. The stats there are just mind boggling. Um, you know, and it, it's kind of, I always feel bad for Twitter for some reason, whenever the Facebook stuff comes out, because if, if Facebook didn't exist, Twitter would be a darn good company, uh, you know, with like over 300 million active users and all this stuff. But, but here's Facebook. At, now they're at 1.6 billion monthly active users. Um, 1.4 of those access mobile. 800 million uh, are mobile only, which is kind of interesting. So uh, about half of the mobile audience is mobile only. And then when you look at the dailies, they've crested over a billion daily users. Um, and one of the things they did this quarter, I don't know if, if it actually launched this quarter or a little earlier, but they talked a lot about it was um, they, gave, they turned on advertising for Instagram. And it seems like, and, and you may know more about this than I do, it seems like they opted people into it and you had to kind of opt out of it because you know, they said something like 98% of advertisers are also on Instagram. Um, so, so, you know, given the scale of Instagram, just to open up a massive, you know, uh, amount of page views and, and add units to that seemed to really help Facebook in the fourth quarter to, to blow away everyone's expectations on the top and bottom line. Oh, definitely. And it's crazy. If you think about like, I, I think the narrative just two years ago was, Hey, Facebook might be capping out on their potential because the world's going to mobile and Facebook really isn't ready for mobile. Yeah, and to their credit, they they redid the mobile app. They got rid of all the remember they were doing HTML5 and they didn't want to do a native app and then they said this isn't working and they tripled down on mobile and and it has really worked. Exactly. And frankly, like those kinds of of uh pivots or stu- you know student body left are really difficult to pull off in a 100-person company. So you know, frankly, I give I give Facebook a lot of credit for being able to make such a big swing, and obviously they're they're reaping the results of that now. And certainly, you mentioned Instagram. Uh, Instagram feels like a darling amongst the advertising platforms at the moment. You know, it's much smaller numbers than you can get on Facebook, but the the numbers are the demographic that advertisers really want. Like they're they're skewing much younger. They're they're, they're those millennials, and they tend to have a much higher buying intent. And so I know, you know, people are already jumping on the platform, but at the moment, the advertising platform on Instagram is a little rudimentary compared to the audience targeting that you can do on Facebook, which is like, frankly, 
awesome. And so, you know, I know a bunch of uh, advertisers are really salivating to get the the full Facebook targeting uh, suite uh, uh, with the Instagram audience. And so I, I think people are really bullish about the future of that platform as well. Yeah, I thought this was uh, this is interesting. I, I I did not make the call, but I was reading the transcript, and they actually called out a retailer as the example. And um, you know, when I talk to retailers, the thing they love about Facebook is uh, top of funnel, and, and this does a good job of kind of explaining it. And let me just read it. And it says, uh, "Our third priority was uh, the improving the relevance and effectiveness of our ads." Uh, we shipped a lot of new ad units last year. These products help deliver personalized marketing at scale. And they said, for example, the UK's second largest online retailer, Shop Direct, uh, before Black Friday, teased upcoming sales with a cinemagraph video to build awareness. Uh, and I imagine they probably did that to a, they don't say it here, but they did it to a, a you know, a lookalike audience. They then retargeted people who saw the video with one day only deals. And then on Black Friday, they used the carousel with the digital product ads to promote products people had been, had already shown interest in. This, this combination showed 20 times return on ad spend from the campaign helping them achieve their largest Black Friday. So I thought it was interesting that they, they called out a retailer to kind of show how, how people are tying together all these different products that they've come out with in a cohesive program like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, at Razorfish, we, I don't uh, we, we do a bunch of launches for Mercedes on the Instagram platform and the numbers are just crazy. Like they literally launched the, that GLK, that, that like twenty five thirty thousand dollars version of the car trying to reach millennials on the, uh, on the Instagram platform and like it drove huge volumes of test drives in the dealership. So like pretty low on the funnel for a super high considered purchase on a platform that wasn't really, you know, initially designed to support advertisement. So seems like they have great traction at the moment. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the acquisition of Instagram was a genius, uh, you know, WeChat TBD, but if, you know, you and I are big believers in this whole chat thing, so that, that, should be a no brainer. And then really the only other one that, that has to come to fruition is Oculus. And, you know, we'll know this spring how well that's doing. Exactly. They have your and my money. So it seems like they're, they're, yeah. they're trending well with the foolish early adopters of no other segment. A survey we just did indicates a hundred percent of people are ordering the Oculus. Exactly. <laughs> of old silly white foods. A hundred percent are ordering that, Oculus. That podcast late at night. Exactly. Uh, so then that was yesterday. Then today we kicked off the morning with Alibaba out of China. Uh, and that was interesting. Uh, there's been, um, I would say there was a lot of people biting their nails on this one because there's been so much macroeconomic kind of negative news coming out of China, uh, where you have companies like Caterpillar whiffing because, you know, they're not selling any bulldozers there. And everyone, everyone knows the Chinese lie about GDP and how bad is it and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I think, Alibaba actually kind of exceeded expectations, especially given that backdrop. Some of the metrics I saw, they hit 400 million active buyers. Uh, the GMV grew 23%, but then revenue grew through 35% for the marketplace. And that's because they've really been focused on monetization. And in a marketplace monetization, we call it, uh, we call it take rate. Sometimes you'll hear people think of, call it the um, commission rate or, or something like that. It's the percentage that, that they earn off of the 
it's essentially revenue divided by GMV equals take rate. Uh, and what's interesting is the U.S. marketplaces are kind of in the 10 plus range. So, so eBay and Amazon call it, you know, they actually charge 12 ish and then two is payment. So it's 10% for the marketplace. Certain categories are higher, others are lower, but on average, uh, Alibaba has always been lower at about 3%. Uh, and, you know, it's actually five and then two goes to Alipay and they're left with three. So, so that's been working up and, and historically, um, just like the U.S., they're, they're way ahead on this. Uh, mobile has just been on fire, their smartphone, but the monetization has lagged, and it looks like the monetization has caught up, which was a real positive and caused them to the, – the GMV was a little light, but then they over-exceeded uh, on monetization. Uh, they announced 65% of their revenue now is from mobile, so they've definitely kind of had their mobile moment, and that that's not traffic. That's you know actual revenue. Uh, another thing that was interesting um, – oh, um, they're really starting to talk a lot about their cloud service, which is called Ali Cloud, uh, and that grew 126% year over year. And it's starting to be just like AWS. It seems to be like it's it's becoming a pretty material part of their business there. Yeah, uh, that I think that is clearly a trend that we we will we will talk about on some of the other earnings calls. Is like it seems like it's good to be a cloud company for sure. Um, it is interesting. Alibaba versus Amazon. I, I tend to think of Alibaba as being a little more Ali, a la carte, no pun intended. Um, meaning like you pay your take rate for the privilege of, of having a listing and selling something. And then any marketing services that you want to help, help shoppers find that listing, you buy separately and you actually buy them from a division within Alibaba called Ali Mama, which is also really fun to say. But so, you know, at Alibaba, you can get a super low take rate because it doesn't come bundled with any of these marketing services that you, you know, frankly, you probably need in order to get a very big audience. Whereas Amazon gives you some of those basic services built into the listing, but then they charge a much higher take rate. And it, you know, frankly, it seems wise. It makes it look less expensive to get into Alibaba because of that low take rate. But in actuality, if you look at a lot of the successful sellers, um, they have a meaningful budget on Alimama too, and I think uh, in that same earnings call, they also reported that that they got a nice kiss from uh, the growth of their marketing services as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other nice thing about having a low take rate is it it uh, lowers the selection funnel or uh, filter. So you know, if you have certain products that are lower margin at ten percent, you may be like, you know, it's not worth listing this thing or selling it on this platform. But if you start it at a low percent, then you give me the tools to advertise what I want to. Maybe I don't advertise those low margin things, and I can still have a ten percent margin product on a two percent you know margin or a take rate marketplace. So, so I, you know, I think that's one of the secrets of Alibaba's success of of keeping eBay and Amazon out of their own backyard. And uh, there's a lot of you know, I've always thought it'd be interesting if if they bring that to the U.S. What happens? And and you know, I think I'm not sure how well. Uh, I think eBay would be kind of the first caribou to fall, and then it's not clear if you know if Amazon would kill their cash cow, which I believe to be the third party marketplace to counteract that. So it would be quite disruptive if that came to the U.S. But you know, everyone's been waiting on that for for like six years, and it hasn't happened. So we'll we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Obviously, the the outlook isn't super encouraging in the short term for for China, and it's certainly impressive that Alibaba was able to continue their growth in that soft economy. Uh, but folks have to remember, 
Amazon in the U.S. is about 30% of B2C sales. If you look at their total GMV, Alibaba is like 80% of B2C sales in China. So they have, like, if you think Amazon is dominant in the U.S., Alibaba is three times more dominant in China. And less than half of the population in China is even on the internet, much less shopping yet. So even though those citizens in in tier one and tier two cities that have driven a lot of the growth so far may not be seeing their their um, economic outlook as brightly as they would like to. Uh, there are an awful lot of additional consumers still to come into the Chinese marketplace. And they're coming into a marketplace that has this true 800 pound gorilla. So it it seems like there's there's still plenty of headroom for those guys. Yeah. And then uh, the a real exciting one was Amazon reported after the bell today. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because if you read the headlines, it seemed like an, a, a total train wreck. Uh, but it was really just, a, you know, I think Wall Street got a little bit ahead of itself because Amazon's been beating its own forecast for, for so long. And um, so, you know, as you know, uh, when you're a public company, you put out this kind of forecast or, or guidance for the next quarter. Amazon put out their guidance. They came in at the top end of it. Uh, and it, it was pretty aggressive guidance. It called for kind of 15 to 25% growth. And at that scale, uh, you know, it's pretty impressive. So they came out right at the top, but I think Wall Street was expecting them to blow it away. But don't believe the head, headlines, you know, largest revenue ever, largest free cash flow. Um, profitability took a little bit of a hit because I think they were even surprised by how active FBA was. Um, couple of the other uh, metrics that I track. So again, e-commerce, let's call it 15%. Amazon grew 26%. And all these numbers I'll say take out uh, foreign currency impacts um, in, in Wall Street language. They call it XFX and FX stands for foreign exchange. So what you do is you look at constant currency to get these growth rates uh, because the US dollar uh, has become so strong. Uh, your European business, for example, would be off five or six points because when you converted it to a U.S. dollar a year ago uh, versus today, it, it actually loses some growth that's not fair when you look at in constant currency. So, uh, so that being said, they they grew twenty six percent year over year. Again, very you know about twice the rate of e commerce. But when you peel the onion, it gets better. The the part of Amazon I watch the most closely is called EGM, which stands for Electronic General Merchandise. Uh, it's basically all the non media stuff, and in the U.S. that grew. Overall, it grew 29%, 28% in the U.S., and 31% outside the U.S. Um, that's a little bit of a tick down from last quarter, but that's because of Prime Day. Uh, so they, they kind of pulled some growth into early Q3 with Prime Day. Um, first party, and this is a channel advisor estimate, first party grew 20%, third party grew 40%. So again, you know, the marketplace is growing you know, more than 2x the rate of e-commerce. Uh, when, when I do the math on the GMV, uh, and they don't report this. So they report their revenue, and we have to kind of unpack it. Uh, for the quarter, it's seventy-seven billion, uh, which is pretty pretty big. And first party was thirty-one billion. Third party was forty-six billion. Um, a couple of other interesting stats. Prime, uh, they said Prime subscribers grew 51% year-over-year globally, 47% in the U.S., and then that makes international had to kind of outpace that at about 60%, I would guess. Um, you and I have talked a lot about logistics on the conference call. They get asked straight up, you know, are you competing with UPS? And they said, no. The reason we're buying trucks, planes, boats, and, uh, you know, whatever else, drones, uh, is our, our, you know, this is kind of a quote, our, our logistics partners are no longer able to handle our peak 
peak needs. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, they called out India. Uh, the stat there that was interesting was they've sold more in the fourth quarter of 15 than they did all of 2014 in India. They just Amazon just crested over 300 million active buyers. Um, and then um, FBA was at 50% of units and last year was at 40. So they just saw this huge, and that's that unit that is itself growing 40% year over year. So they just saw this huge kind of saturation of FBA. And they're kind of hinting that they were beyond capacity. And I, I read the tea leaves that almost said, hey, we're going to build some more fulfillment centers now. I haven't seen any of the Wall Street notes yet. If, if Wall Street reads that as what came out, they'll freak out because it'll be a quote unquote investment phase. Um, and the last thing I wanted to highlight is you and I have talked a lot about the echo is kind of, um, you know, this really interesting product. And since we've talked about it and I, I think we should take all the credit, uh, everyone's now calling it kind of their third or fourth billion dollar business. Um, and they announced today that they're going to be doing a Super Bowl ad for the first time. And it's not Kindle. It's not the retail store. It's not drones. Uh, it's actually the echo. They're going to be doing a Super Bowl ad, uh, featuring your favorite actor Stephen Baldwin. So uh, those were the highlights that I got out of the Amazon call. I thought it was, uh, to me, in the e-commerce world, I thought it was a you know a pristine quarter. It was it was very impressive to have a holiday as big as this. On top of the holiday they had last year, I think they had a tough comp. They had an amazing holiday last year, and they they blew this one out of the water too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just for the record, my favorite actor is Dan Marino, who also is in the the Echo Super Bowl ad. Sorry, uh, I got that mixed up. And it's actually, it's Alex Baldwin, right? It's not Steven. Oh, okay. Uh, you or I could have Steven in our ad, probably. I get my Baldwins mixed up. Yeah, it's a it's an easy mistake to do. Uh, I do think that proves, as as we have seen over and over again, the Jason and Scott show really is a market maker. Um, so I'm excited about that. Uh, it was, I, I thought a lot of the early headlines that, like, frankly, came out during the, the Amazon call were pretty funny because they, it, it, most of them were best quarter ever stock plummets. Yeah. And, you know, it's after hours trading, it's on a small volume. But I, I do think there's this, there, you know, there's this huge sentiment, you know, lots of people are understandably jealous that, that Amazon has historically been able to take a longer view and not necessarily post impressive profits and, uh, you know, still, still maintain their stock price. And, you know, I think, I think there were people that were giddily hoping this is the, sign of investor impatience but I, I have a feeling that that after we get like real volume on the market tomorrow uh, i'm not sure that's going to be the case any other amazon news that you saw i think those were the main things again did we talk about their cloud um business that 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 uh, obviously the last earnings call was the first time they broke that out and that was uh, I think surprised a lot of people with the size and then they i think they did beat their estimate on on uh, aws growth yeah it I think it was 69%. I'll have to look it up. Uh, you tell us about Microsoft while I double check that. Fair enough. Uh, I I didn't have a lot of takeaways from Microsoft other than the same thing we noted about um, Alibaba and Amazon that like amongst their brightest spots was Azure, which is their uh, SaaS hosted infrastructure that sort of competes with AWS. And I think that sales were up like 140% there. So it... Uh, I don't know if that will ever be a winner-take-all type market, but at the moment, it feels like everyone in that space is going lights out and that there just appears to be a lot more demand in the marketplace than there than, you know, is, is currently being fulfilled. So uh, it seems like a, a, a good, smart place to be investing. 
Yeah, so here's the Amazon stat. So AWS grew 69% year over year to $2.4 billion in the fourth quarter. Um, but then the operating income soared, and that was up 161%. So not only is it is it really kind of tracking uh, you know very aggressively on revenue, but but it's quite profitable too. Um, it makes me think maybe we should do uh, Jason and Scott Cloud Services. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll chat about it on the next podcast. Absolutely. If anyone's interested in that, please leave comments, and we'll be happy to – Take your order. One other thing I did want to talk about that's not really Amazon related, but but sort of related to that. You you mentioned you know that Amazon said, hey, all these investments in in fulfillment are really because we we think the world's capacity is capped, not because we necessarily want to replace UPS. Some other news today, yesterday, was that Uber is opening up some APIs uh, to their Uber Rush service. And so essentially what this lets businesses do is offer uh, Uber's delivery service um, through your own uh, user interface. And so, you know, uh, one of the targets for that or the main target for that service was e-commerce operators that wanted to be able to use Uber Rush as a delivery service. And I think they mentioned 800 Flowers and Nordstrom as potential early partners. And I think they also announced an integration or they've already had an integration with Shopify. And so the idea being e-commerce sellers could use Uber as a fulfillment channel. And I was curious if you, uh, I, I have a, a strong opinion about that. I was curious if you think that that's encouraging or how you sort of look at that. It's definitely interesting because the question I get is, and I, I do this whole, you know, you, you've seen this where I go through all the stuff Amazon's doing and, uh, and people kind of freak out and, uh, Prime now, for example, is in 25 metros, and, and I think Amazon could roll it out in another 25 this year pretty easily because it's just out of the fulfillment centers. Uh, and that's where you get um, – so it's a different app and a smaller set of inventory. It's only like 3,000 SKUs, but uh, you get them in an hour if you pay $8. You have to be Prime. So you, if you pay for $8, you'll get it within an hour. Uh, and then in, if you're happy to get it after an hour, you get them for free. Uh, it's in Chicago. I'm sure you've tried it. You've got a, a baby, so you've probably had diaper emergencies and stuff. Um, so people rave about that. And, and a lot of retailers say, what, what could we do to counteract that? You know, we've got the stores, but we don't, we can't do this kind of delivery out of our stores. And I think the Uber thing could be interesting there. The challenge is the, the package density. Um, and Amazon even has an Uber competitor. A lot of people don't know about this. It's called Flex. If you go to flex.amazon.com, you'll see it. And, uh, the way it works is Amazon sends a signal out to drivers and says, hey, we've got 10 packages going to this Zip Plus 4 in Chicago. And it's it's pretty efficient because they'll say, we'll pay you $12. But because they can get package density, the, the cost per package is sub $5, which, which totally works. Um, the thing I don't get about Uber is – can they get to that package density by kind of doing these onesie twosie things? And, uh, you know, that, you know, if they can't, then it's going to be 10 to $12 a package. And then you're kind of looking at luxury goods would be my guess. And curious to hear what you think. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's one of their two problems. The A, I, I did want to mention, I do have Amazon Prime now and we frequently use it. One slight hidden cost, like they like you to tip the driver. So there is, a gratuity expense in there too. And interestingly, they used to suggest you tip, but not build it into the UI. Now they'll collect the tip on behalf of the driver in the UI. Uh, Cause so many people would, you know, have the driver drop packages off and not see the driver. So the, the drivers weren't making any tips. And in Chicago, we're super excited because they've now announced they're going to have Amazon eats. So they're, they're going to be uh, doing restaurant delivery here in Chicago pretty soon. So I'm, I'm looking forward to trying that as well. But going back to Uber, 
I think you hit one problem. It's going to be expensive to deliver a single package in a Camry, right? And there, there absolutely is a, a niche demand to go pick up a, po- a package off the shelf in a store and deliver it to a consumer. But that just can't, like, the, the economics just don't work for that to be a huge scale problem. It simply, it cannot be the most cost effective solution to ship a bunch of those products on a pallet to a store, pay a guy to cut them all open, put them on the shelf, pay another guy to drive his car, put that one pound package in the car and drive it across town and deliver it. Like that, there's so much friction in that system that that can't be the high volume solution for delivering goods to consumers. And the time when we most need extra capacity in the system, the time uh, that, you know, the a big part of the reason that Amazon said they're investing in their own fulfillment capabilities is for those peaks like holiday. And Uber doesn't own any drivers and can't make anyone deliver a package. So the way they get those drivers to work on those busy days is they they have dynamic pricing and they pay the drivers more with surge pricing. And so yeah. if if the regular cost to deliver the package is too expensive – uh, no retailer is going to be willing to pay surge pricing to get packages delivered on Christmas when they most need it. So it just doesn't seem like it solves a very big problem. It almost feels like having it integrated in all these checkouts isn't going to work. So it, it almost needs to be a separate app that, you know, like Prime Now, where you would say, here's Uber now. And uh, it just kind of flips it on its head. And then you could say, you know, if the minimum is if you order $100, then we'll bring it to you. Something like that to have some control over that part of it. Yep. I think for shopping, like there is some, you know, argument in being able to aggregate all the stuff you could get so that you could aggregate the volume in that car. And I, I think yeah. ShopRunner in some ways has had a similar problem with a similar service, if you really think about it, that, you know, it's, it's difficult to know what packages you can get delivered from ShopRunner when you're shopping. And so that makes it less appealing. One thing I do think is I'm a big fan of, and so I don't want to poo-poo too much, is I do really like the idea of businesses providing open APIs to let other people do mashes up of their services. And even the, you know, the core Uber service, you look at now that is built in all the airline apps and it's built into a bunch of the hotel apps and it's, it's maps built in a Google maps. Exactly. I think anytime you have a service that you can make available to other people, other people are going to do really clever, smart things with that service, uh, that you may not have even thought of. So I, I do like that, even though I, I'm not really bullish that, that Uber package delivery is going to be the great savior of the e-commerce industry. Totally agree. Well, we're, we're up against time. Any, maybe five minutes, any interesting retail news uh, since we, we've been kind of talking e-commerce? Yeah. So like really shortly, you know, uh, a number of interesting things going on at Walmart, but the uh, one that, that caught my attention the most was an announcement this week that the, the CTO of Walmart is now reporting to Neil Ash, who's the president of walmart.com, the the e-commerce group. And so the the technology organization for all of Walmart is now living in the e-commerce group. And to kind of put that in perspective, Walmart's the largest technology buyer in the world, right? Like, so this is the CTO with the most purchase orders in the world now is an employee of the e-commerce group. And that to me is a very interesting shift um, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of e-commerce leaders a couple of years ago, they they felt like collaborating and competing for turf with with uh, CTOs was a significant problem. And at least at Walmart's case, they've said, "Hey, 
e-commerce is the strategic growth area, we want to make sure that technology first and foremost supports it. Yeah. It's almost, do you think it's like a coup almost where, you know, the, the e-commerce is kind of just taking over the business? I think if nothing else, like it's a brilliant PR gesture that that Walmart gets to show that, hey, we're really serious about about e-commerce. And, you know, obviously, you know, one of the challenges they have to answer to their investors is, you know, that they're getting so out invested in in technology in e-commerce technology by the likes of of Amazon. And so, you know, I think putting the CIO underneath e-com is is a signal and a good talking point. There, you know, it'll be interesting to see if other retailers follow suit and then that becomes a, a new structure or that's something unique at Walmart. One thing I, I'm sure you saw the store closures and a lot of them are that Walmart Express. And I thought that Express was almost an answer to Amazon where they were going to be able to get small stores close to consumers and they were going to do buy online, pick up in the store. So does that I guess that means that that's not the not the strategy going forward. What about it didn't work, do you think? Yeah, so one thing, you know, Walmart has at least three concepts. Like they have the Walmart Superstore, they have a store, a middle-sized store called the Walmart Neighborhood, and then they have this Walmart Express, which is their smallest footprint stores. And they, uh, the intention is for that to be in city centers and places that you're right, like are great pickup locations and delivery locations for e-commerce. So they they do have uh, robust byline pickup and store lockers in all those expresses. But I think the problem they ran into is the experience you can give an express is exactly opposite of the Walmart value prop, right? Like so Walmart's value prop is all about assortment and big box. And when you can only have one brand of tissue paper and one brand of paper towels, it just doesn't feel like a Walmart experience. They they were hoping that, you know, with their pricing advantage that that would carry the day for them, but it, it just seems to have not worked. And it is interesting because at the same time, that concept hasn't worked for Walmart. There is some evidence that Target's version of that concept, the Target city center stores are uh, doing well. And so, you know, some some difference in the Target audience and the assortment in those two stores seems like Target's figured out how to make those those city-based stores do a little better. The one thing I will say, the Walmart neighborhood stores, which have grocery in them, are continuing to do really well and they get a ton of visits. And so that seemed like even though they closed some super centers and all those uh, express stores, they didn't touch the the Walmart neighborhood stores because that, that apparently is going to be uh, one of their growth platforms going forward. Hmm. And they raised their minimum wage uh, this week, which is has all kinds of ramifications and some people are cynical, but they're the largest employer in the U.S. So I'm, I'm uh, happy for those 300,000 employees that got a, a raise this week. Yeah, hopefully they'll uh, buy stuff online. Exactly. Any other retail news? I think the one that got a lot of uh, buzz was, uh, you know, Macy's has has talked about this off-price concept store called Backstage, I think is what they call it. And, and uh, you know, I think they're talking about opening some freestanding Backstage stores that would compete with Saks Off Fifth and Nordstrom Rack. Uh, but there was a news blurb last week that they also were thinking about opening a backstage department in every Macy's store. So uh, a discount department, you know, in, in uh, each store. And uh, that is very controversial. I think like all the pundits, myself included, are pretty skeptical uh, that that's going to go well to, you know, to have that discount product adjacent to the, the full price product in the store is really, you know, potentially going to erode their value proposition and their price points and, you know, potentially cause them some, 
some problems with vendors as well. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like they'll just put it on one side of the store and walk it over to the other. And it's exactly. Of- it's way cheaper uh, to move that inventory than it is for like a Nordstrom rack. I will I will give you that. But, you know, it's it's, you know, kind of like having a dump bin in the front of your your luxury department store like it you know it's yeah. it's a message to everyone that comes in and goes to one of those full price sections that like you're paying too much just wait yeah and that <laughs> that you know kind of doubt can have a huge impact on sales so it wouldn't be a good jason and scott show without me talking about the death of malls and uh it was interesting uh during the starbucks earnings report howard schultz went on a bit of a riff um i know you follow the payment stuff i, I didn't really look at that but he um about six months ago, he was talking about, uh, you know, that smartphones were just going to cause this epic change and it was going to be a very dramatic change in retail. Uh, and then on the call this quarter, he said, I'll read the quote. I thought it was interesting. Uh, and this is Howard Schultz. I, I think today in the headlines you've seen just in the last three weeks, store closures of almost 50 Macy's, 150 Walmart stores. You've got to ask yourself what's going to happen to the future of those malls that they're anchored by those big box retailers. Um, and you know, I, I don't know the numbers, but a lot of Starbucks are in malls, and and you've got to believe that they're they're you know not going to be opening a lot more mall Starbucks because they're they're kind of saying uh, traffic to malls is way down. People aren't using it. They're they prefer the independence, uh, the convenience of ordering from uh, the Starbucks app and being able to pick it up right at the store and not have to go through the whole mall experience. So, kind of kind of interesting, you know. You could argue it's just the coffee dude. What does he know? But uh, he's actually been pretty good on this trend uh, over the last couple of years. Oh, absolutely. I, I tend to agree with him. Like I would make a quick caveat. Um, there's multiple flavors of malls in the world. And there are these, you know, outdoor life size, uh center malls that uh, are doing very well and, you know, generating over a thousand dollars a square foot across the whole mall. You know, there aren't a ton of those, but those Malls, I think, you know, that are sort of entertainment venues are continuing to do well. But all these indoor regional malls, which is kind of how I took Howard Schultz's comment, I think is a real challenge. And especially because they're anchored by stores that people, you know, don't tend to want to shop in anymore. And, you know, a bunch of those stores are in the process of closing as well. So that's going to be a a big challenge. I was uh, following an event this week that the president of General Growth Properties, which is one of the big owners of those malls, (laughs) Um, was at, and he was talking about the future of the mall is we have to get all these retailers to have open APIs and share all their data so that we can give shoppers a great universal mall app so they can shop the inventory of all the stores from a single app and so that the mall operator can give the shoppers a better experience in the mall. And, and his, his position was, you know, when we can do that, then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to restore our rightful place in the, in the shopping ecosystem and, you know, Frankly, I thought that was uh, a total pipe dream. I, like customers aren't going to the mall, so the experience you give them in the mall isn't likely to to make a big difference. And I think his problems are much more systemic than the fact that he can't have a universal app with all of his tenants' products in it. And I, yeah. I think Howard Schultz is probably right. I did want to point out another piece of credibility for Howard Schultz is he's dominating mobile shopping and mobile payments. Like they announced that they're up to 21% of all their transactions are now from those mobile devices. And, you know, you and I talked in the uh, past about, they rolled out this new uh, mobile order and pay, which is Mm kind of like buy online, pick up in store for coffee. And it's now during their rush hour, it's 10% of all their orders are, our uh, mobile order and pay, which is, you know, huge adoption in a relatively short period of time. 
Um, and so it just, it seems like they are making all the right moves. They're one of the, you know, best examples of a retailer, uh, that's creating those customer experiences that their consumer wants ahead of time. And, uh, like I, I have a lot of admiration for, for what they're doing right now. Yeah, anecdotally, I've gotten the formula at my local Starbucks that if there's three to four people in front of me, it's faster for me to do the mobile order, and I'll actually come out and kind of front of the the number three person. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know how well it works, but I will tell you there's a cool – in San Francisco, there's a super boutique coffee place called Blue Bottle Coffee – they they have a store in the ferry terminal um where the you know the ferry from the the north bay like docks to let people off that you know tend to work in downtown san francisco and they have that feature but they have an extra cool feature they have a geolocation in the app and they allege that they'll figure out when to transmit the order based on like where the ferry is to make sure that the coffee is hot and ready for you when you get off the ferry which uh, I don't. I, I, I'm a little skeptical that they're doing it that well right now, but like that that use case makes perfect sense, and I think you know we're we're just going to see more and more of that stuff where where retailers and manufacturers are able to like meet our needs in all kinds of ways we don't even imagine today because they can use all these this uh, data and these powerful supercomputers in our pocket. Cool. Anything else in retailing? Yeah, so there's one huge piece of news that I saved as our blockbuster uh, ending, and that's for all of you that have been waiting, for all of you that have been in mourning, it now looks like Circuit City is coming back. Bum, bum, bum. Exactly. Watch out, Best Buy. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, Best Buy and, and uh, Walmart and Amazon are all cowering in the corner because, you know, some folks bought the, the rights to the Circuit City name from Tiger Direct, so they're launching a new website um, and they're opening some stores, and the description of the stores, they're small footprint stores that sound an awful lot like Radio Shack-type uh, footprints, and they mention that they're going to be selling uh, private-label Circuit City goods through a bunch of marketplaces, including the Sears Marketplace. And so my immediate reaction was Circuit City brand, Radio Shack footprint, uh, Sears Marketplace, like, that is a recipe for success if I've ever heard of one. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting to track that. Exactly. So this might be a good time uh, to invest in that. But with that, we should probably call it a day for episode eleven. Yeah, it's been a been an exciting week. Hopefully, everyone enjoyed uh, the summary of all the earnings. Uh, the one we didn't catch in this podcast is Google, which is now known as Alphabet. They report next week, so we'll pick that up in next week's show, which is episode twelve. We'll be looking forward to that. Thank you very much for listening. And Scott, great to talk to you as always. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 